Hello and welcome to the Law in Sport podcast with me, Sean Cottrell, the founder and CEO of Law in Sport. We've had a bit of a break. Um, it's been a busy summer. Uh, we've been working on launching our global mentoring scheme. We had over 100 applicants. We've got 46 mentees and 26 mentors who are going to provide a practical insight into what it's like working in the sports law sector, which is very exciting and hopefully will help the development of sports law and improve sports governance and access to law globally. We've also got a new look editorial board, uh, which will again bring in experts from all over the world to help us produce the best content um, that is peer reviewed, that is informative, that is engaging, which is something we pride ourselves in. And finally, we've been working on our annual conference, Understand the Rules of the Game 2018. Um, it's a fantastic event if you haven't been before. It's incredibly welcoming. Um, we get world leaders to come and discuss the current issues and developments from the world of sport. And we try and take a little global view on what the real issues are going to be going forward. At this year's conference, we're covering everything from safeguarding, uh, arbitration, technology in sport, the relationship between uh, betting and data companies, uh, how different contracts, how commercial contracts are negotiated uh, internationally. Uh, we have over three hours of networking on each day during the day, and then we have two extensive evenings of networking as well. So if you haven't checked it out, please do. I'll include the link below. And uh, without any further ado, we're going to go straight into the podcast. On this show, to start off the new series, we have Richard Millington, who is a partner and head of sport at the law firm Shoesmiths, and David Murray, who is a consultant for them. Both of them have had extensive backgrounds working for sports organisations at the cold face of things, and now they're involved in private practice. So it's really interesting to hear their perspective on a broad range of issues, actually, from commercial contracts to merchandising uh, to media rights and the, 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 the rise and influence of companies like Amazon and what that's going to do and how uh, consumers are, are viewing and engaging with sport. I hope you enjoyed it. I thoroughly enjoyed the interview. Remember, you can follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, SoundCloud, download us on iTunes. Um, we have got an Instagram page, but we're not really doing much on it, but we will be going forward. Um, so anyway, I hope you enjoy the show. And if, you're, uh, if you'd like, you can follow me on Twitter. S-P-C-O-T-T is my handle. Anyway, I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to this Law in Sport podcast with me, Sean Cottrell, the founder and CEO of Law in Sport. I'm here in the offices of the law firm Shoesmiths here in London, uh, very close to the Barbican Centre and St Paul's Cathedral on a lovely uh, summer's day. My special guests today are two, um, well, a partner and a consultant from Shoesmiths, and that is Richard Millington, who's a partner who had previously worked 12 years in-house uh, for a number of businesses in, in the sportswear, entertainment, retail, technology and marketing industries, which we'll come on to in the interview. And David Murray, who spent 25 years uh, working in broadcast media and then spent four... Is that right? 25? That's a long career. 25 years in media Tele and telecoms, um, in advisory, both accountancy, um, mergers and acquisitions, and then finally media. And now I'm a consultant... See, this is, why, right. this, is, this is why Evan Davies on the bottom line always gets his guests to do their own introduction. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you very much for that. So there we go. So we've got Richard, who's the, who's the partner and heads up the sports group, uh, and David, who's joined as a consultant. So guys, thanks for taking the time out. I always say this on every podcast that I have guests on, for the reason that I know you guys are super busy, genuinely. Um, 
obviously David, you come down from Manchester uh, to have meetings and other things as well. Um, Richard, you've been in the in the courts, not not yeah, obviously with clients, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, but on some really interesting matters. So the reason why I wanted to get you guys together in particular is one we've brought up on a number of occasions just enjoy your, your company and, and listen to some of the anecdotes from your careers today. I wonder if you could, for those people who aren't familiar with Shoesmiths, you describe the Shoesmiths sports group and then talk about how you've ended up at Shoesmiths and then we can talk about how you and David met and then how that all has come together. Because I think it's just fascinating from my perspective. I think it's indicative of what we're seeing happen across the board in sports law at the moment. Sure, so um, we set up the sports group around 18 months ago. I was brought in specifically to do that. Um, and we have a group of around, I guess, 10 lawyers at any one time who are working on various matters. It's very much a cross-practice group. Um, the one thing that we absolutely focus on, given my background and David's background as well, is true industry insight married to legal expertise. So really kind of making a difference through the insights that you can offer clients. Sector. And so I didn't go into it in the introduction, but just for those that aren't familiar with you, off they can read it in the, in the description that you've worked at. Yeah, so I was with Nike for eight years, started at Old Trafford, uh, as part of the Man United JV Nike had at the time. Um, joint venture for those people who aren't familiar with <laughs> yeah, 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 joint venture. Uh, I, was, I thought just, lawyers are supposed <laughs> to be listening to this. And just to, um, just to date it slightly, that was before the Glazers took over at Man United, before Patrick started at Man United, so that was 2005, I started for Nike there. Um, I mean, great, fascinating business. At the time, Nike was running all the clubs, consumer product licensing, retail, franchise, soccer school, we even did visitor, visitor attractions in Macau. Really interesting time. Uh, I was there for four or five years. Uh, ended up working actually on some of the other properties Nike had similar rights to, like Barca, Brazil, um, generally when we were selling those rights outside of their domestic territory. Um, great organisation to be part of. Learned a huge amount and then went on to be um, a general counsel for the Umbro business, which Nike had acquired. So I was there under different ownerships for probably four or five years. Um, so there I was part of you know, working on the sports marketing deals with the likes of the FA, uh, New York, Cosmos. A lot of player work there as well. A lot of litigation internationally, Umbro at the time was embroiled in, in a fair amount. Um, and I left. Um, and what was that litigation mainly focused on? Oh, at the, t at the time it was litigation with um, a lot of licensees and distributors for the brand globally. Um, generally, any issues we had with players or with clubs we could resolve uh, without having to go to the courts. Um, certainly, when I was there anyway, that was a pretty much an aim because it's so expensive once you got into the courts, you know. And it, frankly, even if you got near the courts, you know, we had, I still remember one of the bigger disputes we had, we probably got through, I think, 70 grand in one month on legal bills. So if you were going to engage lawyers, you had to really think carefully about it, you know. Um, I was then part of the, 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 the team that oversaw the sale then of Umbro to, um, to Iconics, brand group, who I then uh, opted to join. Um, I could have stayed within Nike, but family, personal, and other reasons. And it was I was pretty excited actually to see where Iconics could go at the time. It was a highly acquisitive, um, high growth, uh, you know, Nasdaq listed um, group, um, and I, and I was really brought into initially to look at Umbro, but also then to look at their international operations. So I ended up being vice president, international counsel for that business. Um, we got involved in a lot of fascinating deals. You know, we we almost bought out in a real novel arrangement the image rights to one of the world's most expensive players. We did 
extensive sports marketing work. Um, but then, you know, fa just as fascinating for me is working on corporate deals in that space, understanding how the tax all works um, for the corporates in that space. So, re really interesting time. It just came to a point for me where um, I felt like I'd run my journey there and it was time to look at something new. Uh, strangely, for an in-house lawyer, I'd always had a hankering to think, well, how can you take these years of insight, working on great deals, working with really smart people? Um, could you ever take that into the private practice space in some form or another? And I was fortunate in that Shoe Smiths had been thinking for a while that we needed to do something more material in sports and, and came and approached me. And I mean, basically it happened, they tried to get me as a client and then later on that very evening sent me a cheeky email saying, well, actually, if you fancy it, why don't we do this? And I said, okay, let's, let's talk about it. You know? um, and that's really where it, where it came from. So I'm lucky that they've, they've, they've backed me and the group tremendously. Not only have we got, we've got David, we've got um, a head of elite advisory in Hayden Roberts, who was previously had a player welfare and support in Manchester City. Um, we've got great expertise now across motorsport through a lawyer, Simon Taylor, that's recently joined us. Um, and that's why I was in court yesterday with a, a big case on the, uh, the high court here. Um, but, but part of the satisfaction for me really comes from working with great people, kind of smart, fun, um, hungry people, you know, just good to work with. Um, and that's definitely part of what I bring and it, it is just energising, getting real good smart people to deliver great service for clients and have fun doing it. Yeah, so I remember when we, we met, and I think the, the thing that I like, and this is what I wanted to come on to how you guys met, um, was that it seems that you were given some scope to, to be quite flexible with your approach, which I think is, again, reflective of what's taking place in the market, both at the, at the sort of well-established, known, bigger brands, in the, in the sector and also some of the more boutique firms that have cropped up with this, this, this flexibility to, to meet the needs of sports clients and I think this ties in nicely probably to how, how you guys met and how you've come on board given our, our previous conversations about how effective lawyers are helping. Alright yeah okay well yeah um, shall I give a little bit of background about myself or shall yes. I just dive straight no, into it? wherever you want to go because I know it's okay. going to be fun. Um, <laughs> well just very briefly I won't, I won't be quite as long winded as Richard was. <laughs> Um, I'm actually a chartered accountant, so you don't turn off, um, but a lapsed accountant. Uh, I then ended up, as I said earlier, working in investment banking with Hambros that got taken over shortly after I left, um, doing media and telecoms there, and then found my way to the BBC, uh, initially in corporate finance there, but the most relevant bit is I ended up being head of sports rights at the BBC. So that was negotiating deals on the BBC's behalf, for pretty much every sport you can think of, from the Olympics, World Cup, Euros, Formula One, Wimbledon, Six Nations, cricket, anything you can think of pretty much. Um, although I don't think I did a Major League Baseball deal for American listeners. <laughs> um, so that's my background. I moved, I was based in London, but we moved up to Manchester when BBC Sport moved up in 2011. Uh, moved the family up there and are now, you know, really well settled you know, just around the corner, actually, from Richard. And I'll come to that in a very long-winded way in a second. Um, in 2013, myself and uh, a guy who worked with me, Robert Foster, decided to leave the BBC and set up our own sports rights consultancy. Um, it got to the point where I'd done the same deals quite a few times at the BBC. Um, everything was becoming much more process-driven, it felt, and money was, was obviously tighter, uh, and it felt like a good time to just go and do something different. 
because you know, as I, I imagine most lawyers find, once you've done the same deal over and over again, it you, you lose you lose the, you know that sense of awe that you get when you do these things for the first time. So I thought, well, I can either come back to London, um, which where the majority of the sports rights industry is based, uh, go to Switzerland, or um, or work for myself and went down that avenue because we're really happy where we are. So for the last four and a half years, um, I've been working with my, my colleague advising sports federations and uh, broadcasters on media rights, which you know started off as sports rights but kind of morphed into sports business because media rights are effectively the central plank of how sport makes all its money, you know, be it sponsorship or selling tickets or, or whatever. And it's a really interesting space and I'm sure we'll talk about it in a minute yeah. and it's changing changing massively but to to cut you know quite a long story <laughs> short <laughs> um I Richard and I met through a, a mutual friend so I manage my son's cricket team with this guy this mutual friend uh, we'll name check him Andy Higson he deserves <laughs> a name check um and Richard um Richard's son plays in the same football team as Andy and one day Andy said well you should meet Richard because he's into sport so we met in a pub in Altrincham and discovered that we lived about 10 minutes apart uh and, and you, you you told me you hated lawyers yeah so <laughs> so within the, did, did you know at that point that yeah. Richard was a lawyer yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Within five minutes of of, um, of buying a beer, uh, I can't remember who bought the beer, uh, I said something like, oh, lawyers, they're all a bit of a waste of time. Yeah, it was a tough first day. <laughs> <laughs> and despite that, <laughs> and that's one of the things that was interesting about Richard, yeah, most lawyers would have showed me the door at that point. But despite saying that, yeah, R- Richard actually asked, well, well, why do you think they're a waste of time? And... Uh, you know, we, we, you know, we'll talk about that in a minute, but um, we, we hit it off. And this was probably just when Richard had started at Shoesmiths and we kept in touch. And after, I suppose, about six months, a year, something like that, you know, we had a, a follow-up conversation, which is, well, maybe you know, we can work together and, and try and create something a little bit different. And that's what I liked about, about Richard and, and the attitude at Shoesmiths. It's not your traditional law firm. Yeah, which still you know, can be a waste of time. Not always. <laughs> Not trying to alienate everyone this morning. Yeah. Like so so he's an accountant. Right. He thinks lawyers are a waste of time. Why am I listening to this? Um, <laughs> so, but but the fact that Richard, you know, and Shoesmith was was looking things slightly different, bringing you know, interest in bringing in someone like me and, and some of the other stuff that they've done actually made it really interesting because I thought, well, this is a, a breath of fresh air, really, because it's about a law firm looking to provide the client with what they want uh, and meeting their needs and adding value rather than, as I call it, just kind of filling in the paperwork, which is you know, what, what a lot of lawyers will do and, and charge a huge amount for it. You're able to say that without a script as well. That's good. <laughs> well, it, I think it's always I knew, important. I knew it was a great yeah. <laughs> it's important to, to say, you know, I, I, so is that the lawyers are a waste of time or the shoesmiths are really good? No, I, I generally believe in, in both actually. Um, and, and so, what would you say then? So, let's come on to it then. With the, with the, with the developments in the market, um, yeah, the evolution of the, the, the rights landscape, as you said, and, and, and the, particularly the, the media rights. Um, underpin most of sport and a lot of the motivations around it. In, now you've 
been, how long has it been since been produced since now? It's about six months. About six months. So since you've been here, is there anything that has it changed your perspective on anything? Has it reinforced? Yeah, I'm out the door now. <laughs> <laughs> I made a massive mistake. Um, no, not really. I, I think uh, it's been really fascinating to see how things have progressed you know, hugely over the last six months. Nothing to do with me, you know, Richard, you know, the, the people he, he's brought in and and the different avenues that the sport group are kind of delving into. And are you finding then that, that, that with some of the clients that you're working with, there is the point that you need to have that multi-service offering? Because I remember when we first met and we had a, a good lunch, uh, with John Shay, who's part of the team, or see some of the people more familiar with, with law and sport or from the publishing side will have read lots of John's articles, particularly on the sort of transfer of minors, which some people John's pretty pretty hot on. Um, we had a great lunch, we were talking about exactly what you were saying about bringing that sort of in-house experience and seeing how you can have, uh, provide a better service to your clients. So is that one of the things that when you've come in, you've gone, right, okay, because you obviously, and, and your colleagues had a, had a breadth of experience anyway, that you've had to sort of, you know, adapt after having a lot of conversations with, with some of your former colleagues in the sector and now clients. Yeah, it's been, it's been really interesting and, and I think what we've tried to do as we start to work together is is in the same way when David's working on Star Peel, throw stuff at me, I've done the same, which was, you know, a good example, we're working on a pretty pretty huge sports marketing deal right now. And I'm able to go into David and say, well, this is this is how the other side are thinking about this right now. How should we think about this? Not just technically from a legal point of view, but, but part of the overall strategy to get this deal closed in a certain way, how should we think about that? Um, and, and that's invaluable, really, because I remember at the time we started talking, I just started scribbling it down. Um, and it's those kinds of insights that can really help potentially get through impasses on, on, on big deals, you know, because the strategy and how you approach those deals are just as important often as a kind of the quote legals mm. um, and as a lawyer and particularly as an ex-in-house lawyer understanding your role in those deals um, how you can kind of truly help um, is, is so important uh, well, and what would you say from your respective positions what would you say is the sort of the key issue at the moment or top issue that bothers you or, or trend that you're seeing so remember we talked about um, sports goods pieces going mm. about a year ago now some of the really interesting developments going on there, both within Europe, so in the UK, but also within Europe and more globally. Uh, and obviously, uh, David, we talked about the media rights landscape and how that's, that's evolved. Mm. I know that I haven't given you up to the background to everyone listening. I've given them no brief on this. So I'm just dropping in quite a difficult question halfway through the, through the interview. But yeah. you know, what, what are your views? What are the things that you're sort of monitoring at the moment that you think are of uh, particular interest, whether it is, you know, actually having an impact in, in real terms now or you think it may do in the future? Absolutely. Well, I know now that if I swear, then he can edit, edit this <laughs> section out. So if it all goes badly wrong and you hear a beat, you know what's happened. Um, I think in the, the the media landscape at the moment is absolutely fascinated and, and could, could actually talk for hours about it. Um, but one real area of interest is, is how people are consuming media and will consume media going forward we both have you know kids similar ages who simply don't watch tv they're only interested in youtube and, and playing video games and talking to their mates about video games and watching videos of other people playing video games um so it's it's interesting really if you look at the the viewing dynamics of um the way they're measured generally nothing's measured below 14 and the next age group ups generally measured between 14 and 25 which is a pretty broad mm. spectrum of 
of viewers. Um, and so the, the question mark there is, is viewing at a certain age going to fall off a cliff? Because you've got an age group that doesn't seem to be watching anything. Mm. And yet the 14 to 25 demographic um, is down on the next one up, but not massively. So it'd be really interesting to know uh, are the fourteen-year-olds watching anything, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and how are they? You know, once you stop, if you you know if you if you know, you've got those twelve, thirteen-year-olds who are not watching anything, do they suddenly start watching? I suspect not. So the way people view content uh, it is absolutely fascinating, and you can see if you look at say the Premier League or the NFL, which I'd say are the two major benchmarks for for sport in the world, uh, with possibly the NBA as well. Um, viewing for the first time in living memory has been down over the last couple of years and initially it was they blamed the US election on yeah. the NFL being down and, and and various other things but it is starting to develop into a trend here so the, did you, how, how you're an accountant and also you're an expert in this space how much weight do you place on those figures because for me I'm always looking and think well it's a sample mm. in which they extrapolate that and get, yeah, no doubt there's a high standard of deviation between mm. um, any moment in time, so you can get this huge fluctuation. So I never trust what agencies produce anyway, from my own perspective. Yeah. I think they're indicative, they can show a trend, and you know, given that they're using the, I'm not sure if they are, using the same formula, using the same sample set, you know, is that really truly representative? Is it, and is it good enough in this day and age where you can track everything, so the difference between the Instagram, you know, YouTube, Snapchat, where you can get data. Yeah, uh, absolutely. We, we don't know is the answer at right. this point. It's too early to tell. There's a blip at the moment, and the question is, is that a one-off, or is that something that's going to continue? And we don't know enough about um, measuring the way kids consume media either. Um, if you put it all together, there's a narrative that says, potentially, um, people are consuming media or starting to consume media in, in different ways, which is um, what's calling, causing potentially the fall off in viewership. And we're not talking huge amounts, but we're talking coming down a bit. What we don't know is, well, are those people who aren't viewing it on TV consuming it in different ways you know, through the other medium? The other thing worth bearing in mind is because there's more and more content out there, people are maybe being a bit more fussy. So they're still watching football, but they're not watching all 168, 200 games a season, they might just pick out the big games. So there's, you know, there's a difference between you know reach, you know how many people is the Premier League reaching, and the average audience of a game. But it might be reaching the same number of people, but they're watching fewer games. And it's interesting because even from the, you know, you talk about the breakdown of those those age ranges, that how many of those have got expendable incomes, how many are actually buying, how much they influence other people. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting when you when you start to sort of delve down into that. Because again, I question how accurate all that data is. I think it's the best that they could do at the time. But now, given yeah. the, given the level of granularity we can get on most other things, it, it, it looks quite crude. Yeah, it is. But the, the and you're right. Yeah, you know, these you know, these age groups aren't buying Sky subscriptions or or you know subscriptions to whatever or consuming products or buying products rather. Um, but they will at some point. So is this the start of a trend, as you said, or is it, is it one-off? So if these people, A, if, that, if I'm right in thinking the way they're behaving and it is correct, and, and B, if we're right in thinking, well, if you're not watching when you're 14, you're not going to suddenly pick it up when you're 18, then it's the start of a trend. 
Now, bear in mind, most of the population is over 55. (laughs) So it's a slow-burning trend, and it's easy to get carried away with the fact that um, we're all into on-demand and Netflix and all of that sort of stuff. I think, yeah, I can't remember the exact figure, but something like 90-odd percent of all all video is still consumed through traditional linear TV, so it's not as if it's fallen off the cliff. So we're talking about small changes at the moment, the question is whether that becomes a, a bigger change down the line. And the fact that, you know, for the first time that the Premier League money was down um, could, again, could be an indicator, although there's a whole host of other reasons we can talk about if you want as to why it's potentially down that's got nothing to do with, <laughs> with what I've just said. Um, no, but go on. Why, why do you think it's well, just down since, since you've now said it? Like well, there's two, there's two arguments. One is, you know, we've just had it. It's not as effective as it, as it was. Um, I think what's probably more likely is sports rights are generally driven by competition. So BT um, aren't as interested in pushing Sky as, as they were. Um, there's a trend you know, globally, I think, um, particularly in Europe, for telecoms companies to start acquiring content. Uh, if you track the share prices of the telecoms companies who acquire content from where they acquired the content to now, they're generally down. So BT share price has you know, gone through the floor. Now, again, there's other reasons why yeah. that's happened, like their pension and Italian accounting scandals and things. Um, but there definitely seems to be a yeah, not as much passion for acquiring sports rights you, aggressively as there was in the past. Do you know, one of the questions I always ask people, and I haven't had a satisfactory answer as yet, well, you probably won't get one now then. Is I ask people, why do people watch sport? And I ask this to sports agencies. I said, can you tell me empirically why people watch sport? And the reason why I say this, mm-hmm. as you were saying, one of the big drivers uh, behind you know, the growth of, of sport, the popularity of sport, is media rights and the investment that it gets in theory, mm-hmm. that it can trickle down even into economies or into the gra- development of grassroots sports and participation levels and activities. And the reason why I, I've got, I'm just like a bit of a, what would you call it? Uh, um, I think, I'm thinking of a bully in a china shop, but I know that's not the right term. I'm, I'm basically, I've, 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 I'm fixated, I guess is the word, on um, the influence of sports betting on the valuation of media rights. And therefore, if, if sport, if, which I think, I, my assumption is that sports betting has increased the value of media rights, and particularly internationally, because the, the number of people who want to bet on sport has grown. And is internationally, and therefore it, is, it had an. I'm not saying it's the the um, the only one, but it mm. has an impact, and you can see the rise of sport betting companies. Why are people watching sport, and how? And is that actually, if we were to get to go back to your earlier point about fourteen year olds, why are people watching? I'm obsessed why people do things because mm. before it was just like, oh, we've got people reviewing, great, but with now, when now they've got other options. Mm. Why are they doing it? Because you can't, it's, say for example, that we were to play out and say that is going to be a problem in the future, then you'd have to understand why they are to actually make any meaningful changes to, to, to actually bring them back in. Well, that's a, you know, that's a fascinating topic, really. Um, the reason, obviously, gambling companies have associated themselves with sport is because you don't know what's going to happen yeah. and it, people are passionate about it. And it's probably the only the only TV property out there with the exception of, say, X Factor, you know, those reality TV programmes that um, encourage people to watch live. So up until now, it's always... always Because you don't know the result, and it's random. 
um, you don't know um, what's going to happen, which is the attraction of sport. So you had to watch it live. The really interesting thing now is, are these younger kids actually interested in watching sport live anymore? Um, they consume it in highlights forms, which you know, ten years ago we thought that that's dead. If you're not watching it, I, you know, I coined the phrase: if it's not live, it's dead. Um, but now I'm not so sure about that. But the betting companies are reliant on them watching it live because otherwise you, you obviously know the result. Um, and they can, they're the ones who are now, which I find fascinating. Cause before it was Sky. You know, say use use Premier League as an example. They had, obviously Sky Sports News created the 24-hour narrative around sport. Mm. That was brilliant, right? It hooked people in. Now it's the betting companies who are like sponsoring Rio Ferdinand to do his boxing. Can you watch Rio box? You know, mm. that sports competition. Oh, Bet365 and, and Stoke. Mm. You know, uh, oh, you know, this is the bet. Yeah, I watched a, an advert for the Premier League, I think, the other day by one of the betting companies. And I had no understanding that it was a betting company until right up until the end. Where it was like, yeah, this is a great opportunity. Who's going to win? These are the odds. To, 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 and then they hit you with it. And I thought, yeah, that's interesting because it, it builds, it makes it more interactive, right? Yeah. It's one of the things when we're looking at when I was, when I was uh, back in the day at Nike based at Man United, when we look at ways in which the fans would connect with the club. So the most obvious ways you went to a game, you, you participated, you sang, etc. What was kind of the next step removed from that? Well, one of the things we were talking about the video games, so the ability to play um, in either Konami or EA's video games was, was kind of crucial. My kids, that's what they do. For a huge amount of time, mm. they certainly do that far more than they watch. Say the both my kids are United fans. They do that far more than they ever watch United. Well, why would you? Um, <laughs> <laughs> David, the Arsenal fan. That's why I don't watch football anymore either. <laughs> but, but actually, they get a lot of their sports news then through playing FIFA. Yeah. Because yeah. it now is so interactive. It's all feeds in. Yeah, that's right. Well, it's it's faces, yeah. So that's like that kind of true connection. So I guess again with the betting thing. Because if you are just watching football, particularly if it's not your team, or even if it is your team, if you're an Arsenal fan, maybe David, but you can lose interest, you know, sort of yeah. like and, but the fact you then have additional thing riding on it, I get that in terms of a connection that could potentially drive that, because it's just that having that emotional connection to what you're, what you're viewing. Well, Matt Drew from, from Performer was saying this in terms of the things the American, I think this is fascinating, was saying that... Um, the American, if the sports initial sure should get a decision today about the, the sports betting market in the US, particularly on the New Jersey case for the Supreme Court there, if they do open up the, the betting market in the US, the, 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 the US sports will look at it more from a fan engagement perspective as opposed to actual just, just take revenue from betting companies as such. They'll actually go, oh, this is a great opportunity for us to engage. And I think that is something which I haven't really considered too much. Um, but I do think in terms of the, what the bit that I'm interested in, and we're hopefully having a panel on this at our conference, is that how much is it influencing? Because I think what is then, so what is the purpose of sport anyway, which is yeah, quite a deep philosophical question and no doubt um, relevant to each, each sport. But yeah, I get annoyed because in football, when I chair panels or conferences and say to people, particularly about football, what is football? Everyone thinks they understand what football is. And then when you ask everyone in the room, they've all got a like, hundred different opinions on what football is, depending on who the club is where they're from, if they played when they were younger, etc. But the, the, um, the point being is, does the sport then get influenced, or to what degree does the sport get influenced to be a product for media rights, which then is indirectly really a product for sports betting, whether it is for a better fan engagement or if it is for the purposes of the betting companies. But where is that influence and is there any? 
but it doesn't seem to me that no one really knows, and I find that surprising, given that how, like yeah, was it the, uh, the Sky Event Championship, um, yeah, just a host of I think I'm not sure off of my head, but I know there's a high number of shirt sponsorships. Yes, yeah. it's, it's well, well, every sport has betting sponsors, yeah. um, and it's coincided actually with you know, the normal sponsorship market or the non-betting sponsorship market you know, slumping a bit. Mm. Um, because in the old days you'd have a chief executive who liked Formula One or whatever and he'd throw hundreds of millions at the sport because, and you could go and sit in the box and have a nice glass of wine and enjoy it. And Nowadays, companies want to you know, see some sort of evidence that throwing all that money it, you know, it has some kind of benefit off the back of it. Um, and you know, digital media, you know, whether you think the stats that it produces are accurate or not, is a much more you know stats based you know performance based way of, of sponsors you know or people advertising and they can say well I've advertised and so many people have watched and so many people have clicked etc. As opposed to I've spent a hundred million on McLaren and there's lots of cars going around the circuit with McLaren on watched by billions of people around the world but does that actually have any benefit to my my brand? So I think at the same time as traditional sports sponsorship has been struggling gambling has kind of mm. stepped into that breach you know in the uk helped by the you know relaxation on advertising rules around and gambling then, well. then come back to your engagement point though if that's a missed opportunity i guess one there's a price issue there which is if someone's coming in and i was i think about this in terms of what's really going on with traditional um advertising on sorry advertising on traditional media or just terrestrial broadcast is that so much of it is betting companies mm. uh, are they outbidding people to be on there or is it because the other people have fallen away and therefore I'll give you an example on my Google and, I, and I'm not really indicative of the whole market but I don't allow Google to track my data to give me bespoke ads right what ads come up all the time no jokes is <laughs> I don't see your faces <laughs> they say it. but the uh, um, betting companies Better come soon. The only thing that I can think of is when they're looking at their inventory, they go, "Look, no one's doing this. Can I? I want. We're going to consume. We want to purchase that that space." So I wondered. Then maybe got me onto thinking: is, is that what's happening with the? the, the there, there's no doubt that they influence the market because you know the market for TV ads is set is is based on um, you know what people are ultimately prepared to pay. Mm. Um, I think racing is a really good indicator of when the um, when the the law changed to allow gambling to advertise, suddenly racing became really attractive to commercial TV because they could take ads around gambling sites. Yeah. Um, so it has impact. If you didn't have gambling, there'd still be, still be TV ads, but the, you know, the revenue that, that the companies could derive from it would be less. So I wonder though, that, that, so that's the, the come back to your point about non-betting sponsors, which are, like, where people may want to have taken a risk before maybe to be involved. Now it's a high, it's a higher risk strategy because of the, the you know, betting companies are generally cash rich, and therefore they can invest, in particular if they're launching a new product, you know, gambling offering. Is that, yeah. I just think it's interesting to see what that dynamic is. It is well, it, yeah. Clearly, betting companies are prepared to pay more for sponsorship than other companies, but that, which is a factor a of betting companies coming into the market, but also the other companies not being prepared to pay yeah. as much as they used to or not being allowed to so you know for example snooker is a really good example of a sport that was well, actually typical of a lot of sports 
had massive tobacco sponsorship for years and years. And, you know, it used to be the Embassy World Championship. And, you know, if the player, you know, player had a pack of fags kind of at his table, whether he smoked or not. Um, but when that got banned, snooker really struggled because suddenly huge amounts of money that were being paid by tobacco companies went out the window. Um, and so they, they had to find someone to fill that gap. And after, you know, after a bit of a lag, then a lot of the gambling companies have, have filled yeah. that space. Um, and snooker's actually quite popular, or very popular in, in Asia. So a lot of the gambling companies advertising in snooker. Um, Daffabet being one, I'm not sure they, they may be based in the UK now, but yeah. when they started... They didn't even have a UK presence. They were just, you know, they were there for Malaysia or wherever it is they're based. And and from the, uh, um, I went to a talk of one of your competitors, Lewis Silkin, just to balance things out. People don't think I'm like being paid or biased or anyway. Do they a waste of time? But yeah, they did a, a really good panel on, um, it was actually on the Olympics, but there was a lady there who was, uh, part of a, uh, uh, an agency, marketing agency, and she was saying, when she's advising her clients now, um, because I said, who's the competitors? Because she, men- she mentioned those competitors to sports as, 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 a, as an offering. I said, what's the competitors? And she said, the music industry in the third sector, so that's like the charity sector, essentially. She said, that's where brands were looking to put their money in, and where the sport was having to compete with those who acquired the money. And that's something that, uh, obviously, because a bit of a geek, uh, you know, always looking at the, the legal issues, you, you know, sometimes you put your head up like now and start to think about what other trends are going on in the market, but often we get caught up in the detail. I hadn't even thought about competitive sport, because obviously we were just around sport people all the time. Mm. Is that something you, you've seen as well? Well, yeah. Sorry. No, I, was, I mean, I think that's absolutely fair. You'd always look at that, even when we were, um, you know, the sporting goods brands are a great example of that as well, isn't it? Yes, Nike and Addy were obviously heavily invested in sport, but Addy did the Kanye deal. You know, Nike have done uh, the deal with Kendrick Lamar as well. So, so you don't just look at sport. It depends how you want to go to market, really. What's important for you as a brand or a business? And sport will be part of it, mm-hmm. or could be part of it. Um, and there's still you know, strong interest in it. I've got a friend who works for a major FMCG head FMCG, so fast moving consumer goods, sorry. Um, and, and, and he's, we've probably had two or three conversations recently where he's asked us to actually help out, aside from legal help out, get some athletes in, introduce mm-hmm. the teams, etc. Um, uh, because for what they're looking at, sport absolutely resonates and is really important. So, uh, and, 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 and it's interesting if you talk about what is sport, and, and I guess that's what. It, in part what, it, what you get from sport versus the other properties, it, it is very different, but from a, a Nike and Addy, it's the um, really authenticates what they're doing to be on the pitch, you know, that, that's certainly part of it. Um, but it's, uh, it, I think it's that, you need to touch on the it's the integrity, honesty, passion, the emotion that you get with sport is, is powerful. Um, and, and certainly, you know, some of the, deal, the deals we've been involved with, the people that have been involved with this, there is still, Big demand, but even in sports marketing, you can almost split split it up. Um, we're just looking at one area where uh, technical partnership deals, let's say, um, we'll probably talk on broadcast rights valuations later on. But technical partnership deal, the values for those deals at the top end are, are breaking records at the moment. So you see the Chelsea deal, obviously starts with the United deal, the Barcelona deal. Um, 
these are really big numbers, but the opposite end of the spectrum, the teams lower down, will still be struggling to get significant mm. value on those deals. That, well, and that's just one. Well, I always say that, I'm speaking to, I say, which I think to a club like this, who are surprised, an international club playing Champions League, and are surprised that they were struggling to get the right, the right type of partner. Well, um, part of that comes actually down to what David talked about too, in terms of competition. So take the clock back, I don't know, two or three years, there was a lot of talk around Under Armour and what they were going to yeah. do. Remember that? Um, yeah. yeah, exactly. And before that, it was New Balance who'd come in and done the Liverpool deal. Um, and, and, and current, and, and, and you still have Umbro very, very active as well. And in fact, Umbro are still active, but they're not necessarily doing, doing the top deals anymore. Um, but what's happened in that market is Addy research and absolutely smashing it. You know, Puma, I think, is still making plays. Nike's still strong. Um, but there isn't that same competition again. It's people want they either want the property that's going to help them sell to the kids or they want to make money on selling the gear. Mm-hmm. It's one or the other. And, and there's only certain properties that will help you sell to the kids and they're the ones who get the premium. Um, and the others are commercial propositions. How many shirts do you sell? How many products do you sell? How much money can I make on that? Therefore, I'm going to give you X. So surely with, um, I'm in the right room for this, this question because it's one of the things that bothers me. But surely if you're, yeah, um, Say, let's call it a smaller brand, right? You're a smaller sports organisation, you have a governing body, or you're, you're a football club, or maybe you are in the Premier League or Championship, whatever, right? But you're a small brand. Surely, though, your uniqueness means that, you know, whether it is your environmental uniqueness, the demographic of your fans, your story as a club or organisation or sport, means that there should, whilst it might not attract those big sponsors, you better would it not mean that there's better opportunities for you to engage with a brand that wants to grow with you maybe has the same you know uh, values aligned in which because it seems to me that all too often i see this i see this yes yeah, i see it with sports lawyers but i'm trying to sell their brand to people that they shouldn't really be pitching for because they're just that one haven't got the resources to do with it nor do they have the expertise but there's loads of other people who could be their clients that they don't pitch for and i see it in the same way it, with the sports organisations in which um, you know, they're going to basically try to get the attention of the Nikes, the Adidas, uh, you know, whether it's a Samsung or whatever, but they don't have that resonance, whereas there might be a, a regional organisation or a smaller international was trying to make moves into a market um, where it might have more um, traction. It's interesting that because there are some really like smart sports marketing agencies out there now that, that were this guys who left United and Harry and Leo etc others in that space you can help you know, those clubs should get them on through it should get them on yeah, yeah. yeah but it's, it's, it's you're exactly right it's understanding which partners you should be talking to and should you talk to them direct should you be using consultants or other people if you think if these people are out there talking to all of the brands anyway the fact they can then better think about how you could connect into that world um, could save you a huge amount of time yeah frankly and is that do you think though that is that so that what you're saying here though that's an access Access to expertise, as opposed to yeah, the, the, the connections are there, but they haven't got the the right um, um, also sophistication or expertise is the it's, right word. It's knowing how to pitch your yeah. offering, really. And yeah, if we if we take it back to to media rights, there has been a a a bit like sponsorship. More and more money goes into the bigger properties, which means less and less money for everybody else. Yeah. So Sky is spending more and more on football. Um, which means your, your medium sports. So Sky strategy is now effectively football, cricket, Formula One with a bit of golf and a few other things. 
um, and that's where the bulk of their money is going. And, and so there's less money to go around. So if you're a sports body, you can say, well, should I, I would have been on Sky, but A, not many people will watch it, and B, they're not going to give you any money. Why is that the right thing for you? You should be thinking about, well, where's the right platform for me to reach, as you kind of said, that your, your core yeah. audience? I was, with, I, was, I was randomly, randomly, I was with the Rio Ferdinand Foundation, did an event the other day on the music industry, mainly focused around... Uh, sort of uh, grime artists mm. right? and as far as went because I don't know that much about it but it seemed really interesting and it was fascinating to listen to some of these these young artists and some of the older producers that were talking about the difference in the music industry and it, it literally almost replicates what happens happens in the sports industry with agents and uh, and the uh, you know people controlling the market and they're boarding out for comp- competition reasons and one of the one of the artists was basically saying you know how much I said to them, oh, how, what do you do in terms of capturing your leads? Because they talk about how many streams they get on Spotify, doesn't actually pay that much, uh, you know, notorious for that. And they don't pay artists that much in terms of royalties, but YouTube, Instagram. And he said that yes, they are capturing leads in the traditional way, as in people's contact details and sign up forms and stuff like that. He said, but he said, they'll make loads of money off Instagram because they get one, you know, do one post that gets really viral for, for as an artist. That could be much more substantial than doing one of the more traditional ways. I just found it. Um, I know that other people talk about this in sport for for a while from the athlete's perspective, but I thought that's quite. You know, if you look at it, grime as a as a or a, a niche area of music, uh, you know, he says I don't have to appeal to everyone. I just got to make sure that I appeal to that particular group. And I thought that's a great. You know, you can see sports organisations doing it. Well, there's a there's you know, and I wouldn't. I was I was going to talk about the crossover between music and sport. And I thought I'll just make a fool of myself because I don't really know enough about it. But the <laughs> then, people, I, then I opened it up for yeah. you. So, so you so, but now I'll just wade right. Um, the people who know about these things, um, yeah, I've got a mate who's a who's into kind of brand marketing, and it's all about the crossover between. Athletes, sport athletes, and, and music, uh, and, and nation, brands wanting to. What attack. nation are in, involved? Aren't they? Uh, Rockefeller and what's um, called Jay Z's brand. They do. Yeah. They're, they're now he, doing agency. He keeps telling me about this Stormzy bloke. Or yeah, 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 yeah. He's really big, and it's like, yeah, you know, whatever. <laughs> he's apparently he's got good people behind him. Though. This is the thing. Like people don't realize some of these. They've done it. They've got small teams, but anyway, that's a, we're getting in out of sport here. But so that's the sum knowledge. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that um, but the. Um, on this point, though, coming to mention social media, what's your view on it in terms of, you know, I think there's some integrity issues around. I think it's great in one way. I uh, use the, the, the Mexican Basketball League as an example. The Mexican Basketball League, uh, were, I saw on LinkedIn a, a friend of ours, uh, Ricardo de Buen um, from Mexico, uh, put a post about how he's excited because the, um, uh, the Basketball League has done a deal with Facebook and they looks great and I think it probably is great for the, for the awareness of the sport but then I thought from an integrity perspective you just like exponentially increase the risk of match fixing because before you had only X number of people looking at it now anywhere around the world can stream your games and watch your games so you could be in yeah anywhere around the world manipulate it but likewise also thought what happens when and this is this you know the general view when we've done um, events with uh, you know, uh, I know Lewis Wiltshire from Seven League uh, talked to one of our events once and once again if you look at it the right way, it's absolutely complimentary. I know that BT and Sky have said a similar thing. I think so at the moment social media is very complimentary to what they do. In the States, in particular, with some of the other chats that I've had off the record, they seem to think it's the sort of 
big elephant in the room that no one really wants to touch on too much. But. Well, there's two there's two kind of models there. There's the sort of Facebook model, and then there's the Amazon model. Yeah. If you if you look at digitally, but if you're just talking social media, I think Facebook and the like uh, are really good complements to you know what a sport wants to achieve. Um, it's effectively a free to air broadcasting mm. ad you know, ad driven free to air model, which is kind of what. ITV is or Channel 4 yeah. just done on a global basis and probably paying fewer per per um, per audience um, but sport should should look at platforms like Facebook quite favourably I think because they're, they're doing they will help fill the hole yeah. vacated by you know the big broadcasting companies so they shouldn't be scared about it um, I'm not you know the issue about being available globally to, to bet, you know, the, the lags on these things are so much that yeah, it's, true, it's not actually. it's not really effective way to, to bet anyway. Um, but these digital global giants are are coming, um, and they've got lots of money, but they're not just going to throw huge amounts of money at sport because it's got to make sense from a business yeah. perspective. Was it Facebook that bid for the IPO rights? They bid yeah. for the digital rights. Yeah. Um, so what Facebook can offer, um, without wanting to advertise Facebook, is they can connect the sport with all the people who who might like that sport, and there are deals to be done. Soon they might not be able to. <laughs> Given well, the Cambridge Analytica stuff that's going on at the moment, well, it's, it's, they might have to change what they're doing. Yeah, it's, it could change their model, but it, that, that's really interesting. From a sports perspective, and from because one of the things I didn't mention at the start is I actually teach negotiation as well. Uh, and the art of a deal is creating value for everyone. So for a sport who wants to access all these people without paying for them, they can put their feed up and Facebook's able to connect them um, for free effectively with you know hundreds of thousands, millions of people around the world who fit the right profile for that sport. Facebook makes some money on advertising, the sport makes some money on advertising, in theory everybody's better off. So it's a... As long as you, that's really good lawyers to make sure that you don't get the, uh, um, you know, the, the, the there's certain provisions in place to make sure the right ads go up. As long, yeah, <laughs> the right ads, and as long yeah. as everyone's in agreement with the use of their, their data, etc. Which, um, yeah, as a non-lawyer, I'm going to be a bit controversial here, but who signed up to Facebook thinking they weren't going to manipulate your data? That's what I want to know. It's like, oh no, they're sadly, using... Sadly, some of my family members. Yeah. Yeah. They, they're using my data. Well, it's free. You didn't have to sign up. You I haven't read the terms and conditions. I generally don't think people were, 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 were well behind in terms of mm. what that data means. My dad was a police officer, so he's always been quite... Perhaps. Uh, quite, quite aware of, like, why, why on earth would you... From a criminal perspective, that's why he was looking at it from, like, mm. you know... Like old school crimes, like, why would you want to give this data away from identity theft and stuff like that? Well, you're effectively getting something for free, and in yeah. return, you, you, you're giving your data, so yeah. it's a bargain, you know, with, with the devil, if, if yeah. according to some people. But it was a bargain that no one was forced into, yeah. I suppose the question is, how many people knew what they were doing? And it's quite interesting in the Senate hearings when the guy plonked the contract on the table. So, Facebook could perhaps do with some simplified also, terms the point of, like, a, you know, we know the power of crowds. So, mm. so we, you know, there's more science about this. This is the, the this is a, a more broader point that, that I take a lot of interest in, which is well, I, I teach we, a lot of this. Inf- yeah, influencing, it's yeah, really interesting. Right, right, it is really interesting. So we don't forget more. about the law. Let's yeah, talk yeah. about this. But, 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 but it's interesting from a legal perspective because mm. it does decent mess looking at this at the moment, right? Which is, and this is my point about sports betting, esports, and one mm. of the like, sort of topics at the moment because mm. it's not a risk anymore. They know the outcomes. 
they know like algorithmically that if I can get you to do something X amount of time, if I can get five of your friends to do it, I know I'm going to yeah, increase. It's just you. a numbers it's game. It's just a numbers game. Mm. And so when we talk about people's free will, you then have to. Well, okay, so, so well there's the thing is individual choice. free will. But, Sorry for that noise. But, yeah, there's there's. there's, there's <laughs> Without getting too philo- philosophical here, there's a, there's a th- there's individual free will, isn't there? But if you put enough people in the room, you're going to get a trend. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But I just think it's fascinating from a regulatory standpoint how to deal with that. Um, mm. Do you think, is there any, I've asked some people about this, is there, so in the, how you define a market is quite interesting from a competitional perspective. Mm. Do you, uh, how the, I've, I just posed the question, again, I'm, I'm full of, Full of nonsensical questions sometimes, but people were entertaining me, thank God. Um, but one of them was that, that, that I thought was interesting. If you look at the, so Facebook, Amazon, I think it's Apple, who's the other company? Google, uh, collectively have the global GDP equivalent, their revenue is a global, global GDP, uh, greater. Gross Yeah, is greater than India's, mm-hmm. right, which is astonishing, right? So that's a huge, huge financial cloud. When we're looking at the competition and the ability to acquire rights, and so we saw the domestically, we saw the Virgin BT Sky uh, case. Is there going to be a point in the future as we see this, um, as you were talking about, uh, a media rights landscape as opposed to a traditional broadcast? You know, there's see less differentiation between that. Is that going to have any? Do you see that having any impact? Ultimately, yes, because I think the other thing worth bearing in mind is traditionally media rights have always been a territory by territory, right? Both for language and also because your your transmitter (laughs) only goes so far. Whereas now, yeah, there's the capacity for being a truly global player and going and buying out the global rights and shoving it down a pipe and anyone can access it. Well, soon through the sky, Elon Musk gets his satellites. Um, Well, 5G is a really interesting thing as well, which we probably won't talk about, but could do broadband out of the out of a job effectively um so there, there's definitely the potential here and i think where um there's an opportunity to acquire these rights at a reasonable price at a commercial price they'll step in because i don't think they're going to be economically naive at the moment you could argue that say the premier league rights in the uk are worth are valued at more than their commercial value because bt and sky are paying a strategic value yeah, to yeah, get them. in effect we're talking about it's almost like a Feed, uh, the valuations reflect about for the British telecoms market. Yeah, yeah, but why is, you know, an Amazon is no different to a Sky. They want content to and attract subscribers. And they're huge. The thing I think is super interesting about Amazon uh, is they're a huge server provider. <laughs> Amazon Web Services mm. provides huge amounts of data storage for people, which I think is slightly different. I know that they're not saying they're doing anything with that data as in analysing something, but just in the sense of the uh, where they get a lot of their revenue uh, is for that. It's a bit like Alibaba, and much bigger than just um, an online um, uh, merchant finder. Mm. They are a technology company. They do the, they're huge in terms of broadly what they do. And then I think when you're dealing with an uh, organisation like that, maybe that changes. I don't know. I'm not, well, not a competition lawyer. Well, so I think the, the interesting thing as well with all of them, and this applies um, to the sporting goods guys as well, which is that they're all they're all into sports to sell something else. Yeah. Completely. Uh, not looking at him. You might think. Nike rally you into to sell the kids yeah, in part but actually the, the, the good margin on socks sweatpants all that yeah. kind of stuff it's the same with BT going in it's, it's on um, you know, mobile um, broadband just different models and um, I think Amazon you talk about you know, the, you know, the 
coffees or, or the, you know, the way in which they're kind of taking over retail. And I base this solely on the fact that my wife is always on Amazon <laughs> and everything seems to come from Amazon. <laughs> so that, that's my deep assessment of Amazon's market position based on my credit card. You could, you could be an expert witness. Yeah. That, that, that does start to get quite interesting in geography as those guys go into, in the, you know, in the same way when the Premier League started auctioning its rights, the, you know, the European Commission was heavily involved in regulating that. Well, it's really well that worked out yeah. well in the end, though, for the Premier League. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the great values off the back of it. Um, whether that starts to get, you know, as, as the new guys come in off the back of their own quasar monopolies, whatever you want to call it from a league point of view, you know, very dominant players, uh, that could be really interesting in how that impacts on things. And so with the, uh, to finish off with then, I'm going to come on to this, so, so we talked a lot about media rights, coming on to the sort of the merchandise and the, the, the lifestyle brands around the sport and they're, and they're creating, what do you see as a future trend? Obviously we've seen a lot of stuff with esports being, you know, whilst the financial contribution might not be that great, we're seeing it as you were saying about the engagement tool would be you know, something that, that whether it's the NBA, whether it's the Premier League, whoever, are, are looking, Formula One, Mercedes, all looking at uh, and now engaged in esports. What other areas do you think are trends for from sort of a merchandise perspective um, and brand perspective? And uh, what do you see as some of the, I guess, key legal obstacles that we're going to see going forward, particularly with Brexit from the UK's perspective? Uh, crikey, that's that's a question. Sure. Know, yeah, he was saying before, he was saying in the last podcast I was on this, this so-and-so, I won't be rude, asked me about Brexit. <laughs> and you've just gone and done it. Sorry, because I get a high five. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I did it on purpose. To give you, oh, so I think, I like, wait, there is an out, there is an out on the Brexit one. You can say, uh, we'll just have to see what happens, right? So you can, that's, that's, that is the big out. I mean, it's, so it's, it's fascinating on, on Brexit. We've been one of the first... Well, really fascinating projects that picked up after we moved into private practice, working with the UK sporting goods industry. Um, so going down to Westminster and actually having kind of in-person meetings with guys at Bayes and, and going through how the government was thinking about um, the way in which Brexit could impact the sporting goods industry. And we can't talk too much about those no. questions, but it was, um, you're exactly right. It's just, it's, just, yeah, it's, it's just a great new question mark. And it impacts across a whole range of things. So relevant to that sector in particular, IP, how you can move goods around Europe, Selective distribution systems, all, all that kind of stuff. So that's that, that is a big question mark, and, and and we know in that industry it was already affecting affecting investment decisions. So, in real simple terms, logistic hubs that were going to be uh, put in the UK were now getting put in the Netherlands or other European countries, because if you're going to invest 15 million in a facility right now, you might want to just think about where you, where you're going to put it. So what's yeah. the real time effects um, beyond the more personal effects of all? You know, Sports, sports retail, but a lot of people from the UK work in the Netherlands. Um, you know, in Nike, yes, there's a sort of personal impact as well for people at, at Brexit. Um, you know, you kind of threw in um, esports or, or, or trends going forward. I'm basically spouting out a load of words. Yeah, yeah. That's what I figured. Uh, yeah. Yeah. What do you make of that? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. I mean, esports is. <laughs> you forgot <laughs> Trump, <laughs> Syria. Isn't <laughs> it? So when. Um, I'll give you a couple of likes. So I'm very did a deal with Hashtag United to do their kit. You know, and actually, you talk about esports or talk about, well, that was, a, that was a relatively traditional deal. Yeah. You know, here's our gear. Can you wear it, please? You know, and, and we hope the kids will watch you and they'll buy more gear. You know, really kind of traditional stuff. Um, so it's almost like an entertainment property. Like a, a, mm. that. And yeah, I know it's quite segmented, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but 
but again, the, the sorts of deals we've seen are still you know, the stuff I've seen relatively traditional. What if I reflect back on where I've been in this, in this industry for like 14, 15 years now? I thought you could I'm say 40. I'm trying to think that's why I'm like, so like thinking well. Yeah, yeah, not, basically, I'm not as old as David, but um, it's you know, if you look back at the models that have been that have been certainly on so you talk about the merchandise or technical partnership, um, you know, licensing side of, uh, of things, aside from the kind of broadcast and media rights to one side, but there was certainly a trend when I came into the industry too where clubs uh, and sports properties were kind of outsourcing to the IMG model mm. and, and, and not just, just IMG who are you know, kind of omnipresent in, in sport, but that model was then adopted by Nike in effect too. Ian Todd who at the time was Nike Sports Marketing so that was the kind of you had like mini IMGs and a Man United Barca, you know, and, and and that model over time. I mean, it was a great sell to the clubs at the time because it was you had this expert to come in to give you guaranteed revenue, who was going to you know drive your international expansion and, and bring complete expertise to what you're doing domestically. Um, and I think what happened over time with that model is was with anything when you outsource, you start to look at it and you think. Mm. Couldn't I do that? Yeah, yeah. Well, hang on a second. Like that, that store's pretty profitable. I'm not really seeing as much of that as I thought I should be. So over time, that model got a little bit un unpicked, and you still see with the likes of Fanatics. You know, there is that model is is still out there. Um, but but the trend, certainly the bigger end, was actually to strip stuff back to more, you know, high value, yes, and complex, yes, but but more limited in terms of rights grants that were, that were happening there. I mean, it's still you've still got to think if you talk about esports, actually, you know. Part of these deals as well as thinking through not just the traditional digiboard etc but what if that team has an esports team how should we think about yeah. that uh, okay i mean i've used the example of my kid playing fifa all the time so okay like we want to be in your in the fifa version of your stadium and and beyond that i mean i should add actually when i was at, at nike i also as well as doing the legals on the video games deals i also did the commercial deals so i used to negotiate with ea and konami and i remember at the time uh, talking to them about, well, okay, how can we actually represent the club in a different way in your space? You know, what can we do that yeah. is different? And getting pushback at the time, they were trying to restrict what we, because at the time we were trying to get effectively ad space in, 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 in the game. So, and, and but also different interactive elements that can kind of help 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 drive that. So, it's you know, I'd say that that has certainly been a trend, but it's now um, I, I say that, and then you know, the Chelsea Nike deal, I think, is actually much more of that model. So that that's on the big sports property. So I, I guess like anything, these things probably come in trends. Yeah. So there's times when it makes sense for an industry. There's times when people are like, you know what, I just want to have someone else sort this out for a while. It seems, seems so. So for both both of you have said though, and this this is I'm not sure if you would agree with this, but uh, Gary Vaynerchuk, who people will know of, who's got Vayner Media, maybe some of the younger people may know of him, who's a big uh, media agency, five million turnover and stuff, and is now involved in sport. RSC Ventures, he's got a, a JV with them. True venture. And uh, so just for your <laughs> Just in case you forgot. <laughs> um, but he said, yeah, what we're seeing in the media space, in social media, is no different to when radio came, it's no different to when TV came. So it looks different, but in terms of the, the actual, what's happening to the market, how we're responding to it, it's just no, we've seen this before. And therefore, the expertise can be drawn on from before and can learn from those those issues that we had. And it's, it's like the age old issue: always, you know, making sure if you're going to do a deal that you understand exactly what you're getting, yeah. which is the age old you know issue. And and just the simple logics of you know when we talk to clients and they're 
looking for you know, insight or whatever on the deal or working through that. One of the things we always say is like walk the stadium. That that's that can apply even if there isn't a stadium. You just really understand what you're getting into, understand the environment, um, and, and make sure you've actually understood exactly what you know in two or three years' time how you're going to be represented, what's really going to bug you if it's not there. Um, and that, that's why it's really important to get someone in who really understands what they're doing because yeah, we're at a point where things are changing quite a lot and it's very easy to try and do a traditional deal and make a complete mess of it because you've overlooked something and, and a example, really good example was um, German football a few years back, quite a few years back just when online rights were taking off um, I can't remember the, the channel, the, a, a German cable channel that preceded, or satellite channel that preceded Sky that they took over, um, bought German football rights, i.e. the Premier League in Germany, for whatever it was, um, but didn't buy the online rights. So they thought they had an exclusive deal. Wow. Deutsche Telekom came along and said, well, we'll buy the online rights. So they bought the online rights and then started streaming all the matches <laughs> over, over Deutsche <laughs> Telekom's yeah. cable. And so they thought they got exclusive rights, but didn't, because well, it was a pretty basic error, but didn't really understand what yeah. they were doing. And that's the risk where you start crossing over. You're right, you know, social media or, or digital is no different to any other distribution platform, although it may, it may package things up in, in different ways. But you need to understand the overall picture. You can't just look at one thing in isolation because, you know, it, convergence is a word I use. Uh, I, I was using twenty years ago when I was in investment banking. You know, media media distribution platforms are converging, i.e., telecoms and yeah. TV and mobile and everything. And it's taken twenty years for that to happen. Smart, smart products. And but it's now it's now happened. And in the early days of online, there was a tendency for for federations and lawyers to want to parcel everything up. So, right, these are the mobile rights, these are the TV rights, these are the whatever rights. But you can't do that because they're all kind of the same thing. And I think the BBC probably led the way in, in ensuring that you talked about platform neutral rights. So you're buying two-minute clip rights and you can do whatever you want with them. Now, they're primarily going to go on mobile, yeah. in match or whatever. Um, but you can put them anywhere else because if you try and legislate within the contract, you're defining you know, something that's impossible to define because it's changing all the time. Also, so you, there's a point where, we're, where I think that if you, you, obviously you lecture on this, and you know, both of you experience in this area, but also the reality is if you, with any of your commercial partners that you want to work together generally. So, so you know, outside of the, the, the once the bidding is done, and close. You want to work to make sure, and you've got an invested interest as a rights holder that, that, that the people who acquire those rights are maximising the opportunity because it increases the value of those rights later on. Yeah. Right, increasing your exposure. A friend of mine, um, Nigel Palmer, who is a film financing lawyer, SJ Bellowin, later at Farron, a great guy, and I was trying to understand what he did, and he was essentially said, I'm a banking lawyer. So I said, Well, why would I not, if I was you know, trying to um, distribute a film? You know, get a financing deal done for it, why would I not just go to a banking lawyer? And he said, when it all goes wrong, I know where the money is. <laughs> and I thought that was a great way that, but that's what you talk about, it's the expertise to actually understand, to go, it's like giving someone who doesn't play a guitar, a guitar, me, pointing in case, right? If I, I know in theory what you should do with a guitar, <laughs> but I could not make it sound nice no matter how hard I try. But it's interesting that, because one of the things, you talk about trends as well, and, this isn't uh, 
sports, but it's certainly something that we've worked with, with sports properties on. And then we've seen a benefit actually on the other side if we're working with a, with a brand that's looking to get into sport is, is how you actually sort your documentation and moving away from this idea that we're going to send you a really long, really convoluted contract that's totally one-sided because we think we're really special and you're just going to sign this and send it back. Is <laughs> actually understanding that lawyers are actually part of the sales operation. And, and in the same way, I'll give a great example. You know, we did a title sponsorship deal. Um, and I can still remember getting the draft that came in. I looked through it and my heart sank as a private practice lawyer. So I went, this is really balanced. Like, this kind of looks okay. And so you say it's not actually these guys are thinking about this in the right way. And yeah, okay, you know what, there's a couple of points we need to make clear here, you know. Um, and we need to think through a bit like we talked about, okay, what you know, great examples with those deals, a lot of stuff centers around ex exclusivity, but um, you know, this was actually a good example of uh, of a document that absolutely matched what was needed in that situation. I've seen other examples where you get stuff through and it's just convoluted crap. I think this is a... And, and you totally don't understand. You go, hang on, what am I actually paying you money for? And it's one of the eight, you know, one of my gripes with lawyers. So mm. I had a few winters about lawyers as well. I hasten to add, I've worked with some absolutely amazing lawyers in private practice and I should do some name checks or something. I'll tell you an example. I said the first lawyer I ever instructed was a private practice, uh, John Taylor. JT, yeah, yeah, JT, JT. So, you know, have you know, some really good guys. Um, but it is one of my kind of bugbears when you just look at and go, well, well, what am I getting and how much have I got to pay for it? Transparency. If I can't figure that out within the first couple of pages, it really annoys me. Because I'm just what? like, why is it buried on pages? And you do get, you know, contract, when I was at the BBC, the number of times we get contracts through because, you know, the, the federation had employed someone who didn't really know what they're doing, and you get this massive thing draft contract through. You just chuck it in the bin. You can lose this deals. is a complete. You can lose deals you can. I yeah. a great, great example as well. Uh, you know, there's a big venue that um, you know, had, a, had a very one-sided set of terms drafted, and in effect, they were told that's great, but if if you want to host gigs of a certain scale, then you're not going to do it like that. So why don't we? Yeah, it is. But we we did. I, I'm not sure whether I can name them or not. But a certain American sports federation that have has hoops. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we were netball. <laughs> yeah, it's the American netball. No, it's not. Um, we were trying to do a deal with them many years ago, um, and their lawyers were overly zealous. And all yeah, we were, we've actually got a panel at our conference that hasn't been announced yet, so it's by the time it's published, we haven't actually a panel on this topic of common about negotiations. Mm. I'm sure I'm sure everyone involved is now moved on and they're way better than they were. No, 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 the, the yeah. Americans it's interesting, so Richard Brand, who spoke at our conference last was chaired a panel at the conference last year. And we did a member of his firm, Aaron Fox in uh, in New York, they kind of hosted the football event we did. And I was just talking about yeah, the difference between American systems, legal system and Approaches to, to contract negotiation, and, and what what people are told, particularly in houses domestically, and, this, and particularly for international companies, where you have people based in the state, yeah, you know, the different, yeah, the tension that can create between having a, a, a UK team and a US team, and they've got to work mm. together. And he was saying that in his world, he would like to take the approach we take in the UK or in England and Wales in particular, but you know, but I'm sure it's the same in Scotland. But yeah, very and probably across Europe, but very uh, pragmatic type, more of a pragmatic approach. We said mm. the litigious culture there is in the US. He said yeah. anything, anything that's slightly wrong. He said they risk getting sued the hell out of. So therefore, they've got to cross all the eyes, dot the t's, mm. and that's not only from the prior practice perspective. That's also from the in-house perspective. And so of course, I get that, but a degree of perspective is is also yeah. worried. So this was a deal where 
I don't think any money was changing hands. Oh, right. It was a case of, what well, we want to put one of your games up on telly in the middle of the night, whatever it was. Um, they sent us this enormous... Co- no, we can't move on this. We ended up just to say, well, it's not worth it. Yeah, that's it's probably, not worth yeah. the hassle. Yeah. That, can, that can happen also. I mean, even on the, on the, when we talked about brands, but on, on the player side, and obviously the, the buyers mm. working in that space, so I used to work opposite those guys yeah. quite often. And, and through the kind of drawn-out approach, you always might think, okay, you know what, I'm doing the best and just yeah. for my client because I'm hammering every point here. But the reality is there'll be a number of different deals on any one time, and, and, and we've... I remember walking away from deals because mm. you know what this this guy is just too it's, hard to deal with. Negotiation we're going to go do a deal somewhere mm. else. So I remember one outside of sport, an entertainer, uh, not a designer, we were going to partner up with at one point. His lawyer dragged out the negotiation so much, got so into aspect of IP, we fundamentally didn't agree with it. But ha- because of his approach was so caustic, it dragged out the deal. Uh, we uh, and then something changed in our business. So if he'd have signed the deal two months, three months earlier, and just accepted some of the provisions, his client would have been a chunky six-figure sum up. As it was, because it got drawn out, he lost the deal. Wow, uh, yeah. Uh, so you're just always going to be aware of context. Even. But, but I, yeah. I, just, I listened to I've done it twice on this. But the uh, the, the bottom line with Evan Davis on on Radio Four, if you haven't listened to it, it's always worth checking in to some of who we had on there in negotiation. Podcast with three experts in negotiation, one of which was a negotiator with terrorists or for, for the mm-hmm. police, um, or for or the military, one of the two. And uh, they were saying the first thing is to be honest about what it is you want, what it is they want. Don't try and be deceptive. And there was business negotiators as well, and they were saying the same thing. And I always think that where people are, and I said, I, I come at this from, you know, I, do, I deal with negotiations from my own business perspective. Like I said, I don't have to work with people, I've got that luxury. I don't have to work with people I don't like. And so I think if you're being a bit, if you're purposely being difficult, then I don't want to, I've got the option, I don't have to work with you, so I just choose not to. So, because <laughs> life's too short. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, but the, from a, um, but from, from speaking to the people, the, the, the general counsels that I know, in house lawyers um, and others, yeah, they just want to, yeah, people just want to get things done. If you've got someone who's just purposefully, or not even purposely, just b- b- being difficult time and time and time again, it totally just, just, just means you're, they're less likely to get the outcome they want rather than more likely. Is that Absolutely. It? And I think, I don't think it's purposeful. I think there's a danger sometimes with the less useful lawyers to just get stuck into this legal mindset and this is, this is the right thing to do rather than being able to see the bigger commercial picture, which is, well, does it really matter? Mm. if I get this or not. They, lawyers should be asking that every time. It, 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 does this clause really matter? If it doesn't, just accept it and move on. I, I think, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting point, maybe a, 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 a chat for another day, but I think just in life in general, like, when you're dealing with something, mm. you know, we, I do with my colleagues internally, and externally, you can get stuck on a particular point because you, you just yeah. get anchored to that. And then you actually go, actually, what was the outcome that we want? Well, and, then, and then you revisit it. So it's interesting. Gone... To, to that point, I mean, just, just in real, like, good examples, you know, we've done a, a recent broadcast rights deal in a, in a particular sport, and we designed it in a certain way because we knew the sort of, you know, they were going to go and take this out and try and get it signed. They were acquiring rights. We did it on four pages. Wow. Because, actually, anything longer just wouldn't have worked in that scenario. So you design very specifically the document to meet the need. I've done a, a, an introducer's deal on, a, on a, uh, where we were acting for a guy who was uh, introducing a buyer to a club and he was, he was um, uh, looking for an arrangement that would secure a pretty 
chunky commissioner. Uh, uh, we did that in uh, one page. Uh, because again, if you produce a 20 page document at that point, never gonna, you're going to spend six months negotiating, yeah. right? You want something in that instance where it's, yeah, your main thing is protected, um, but it's in a form that someone can look at and sign and you can get on with, with the actual deal. Um, but that does take, I don't know if balls of the advice is the right word, but, but you know, an ability where you trust the guys, you walk them through, look, okay, this is not going to be, you know, in a couple of years' time, there may be stuff you kind of look at and think, I kind of wish this had been in there. But as long as you actually look at it and have cost-benefit analysis, go, well, actually, yeah. and if, it, I, if I do it any differently, I'm likely to not even get it. That's say, it gets so. back to the relationship thing you were talking yeah. about as well, is that yeah, if the two of you are wedded to working together over the longer term, you should be able to condense it in a few pages mm -hmm. because things will change, and when things change, you have to find a solution yeah. to, to working around it. If you, you know, someone I can't remember who once gave me a piece of advice: if you have to pull a contract out of the drawer, then you you're probably you know effed anyway. Yeah, exactly. Because your relationship <laughs> your relationship's True. broken down it's, if you can't work through just it. On that, I mean, I remember that. Uh, so I did, um, we did in, in my last kind of year with Iconics and then when I joined Shoesmith we did one of these as well so we did uh, some joint ventures in China three of them actually um, and I remember talking to one of the, one of our, one of the guys in China around uh, you know, how we were negotiating this and he said actually uh, over there it's almost like a personal honour in that, in that he, you know, regardless of what's in the contract they will expect at the right time that, that if he rings me I will, I will sort things out yeah. it's as simple as that and so um, not yeah, it's so, Joe, you have to, I think this is why lawyers, particularly getting good lawyers in, is one, they can facilitate getting things done, but everyone wants some, I think, good contracts. Everyone knows where they stand, right? Which is one thing just to clarify so there's, there's no confusion. I think sometimes, even with the right intention, you can still have confusion. So, I think it makes sense to have well drafted contracts for that reason. And also, just as a thing, is, should things, because relationships do mm. break down for a whole bunch of reasons. No, absolutely. It's, it's always good to do that. But I agree with you. I think that um, in probably 90% of the cases, most people in business generally in this square business or industries generally want to get stuff done mm -hmm. right and it's normally as, as sometimes it's a I'm sure it would be interesting actually there's any analysis on this but some of the disputes it may be in relation to not necessarily the parties who negotiate that deal in the first place it may be other factors or other influences that cause there to be a dispute I think we should wrestle I was thinking about time and I was looking at the clock it's super interesting we'll have to break this down to a few parts but just fascinating to chat with you thanks for entertaining my random questions um, uh, and I also think you're really prepped for this so uh, really enjoyable really insightful thanks for us no, thanks for coming in uh, do we get paid now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's it well, this is where the audience what falls apart we <laughs> can uh, put it out on um, put it out on um, oh, we should have had a contract up yeah, front exactly. clearly <laughs> Wikileaks. Yeah, Wikileaks. Yeah. Sports. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a real life practical example of no contract. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Then.